Welcome to the FBCLB podcast, where you'll find the preaching of Dave Delaney, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Long Beach. Thanks for listening. Take your Bibles. Let's go to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 15 this morning, Mark chapter 15. Hopefully you have your Bible with you. If you do not, there should be one perhaps in the back of the seat in front of you. Maybe in the back of the seat behind you, you'll find a copy of God's Word. And we would encourage you to pick up that copy and follow along with us this morning. Mark chapter 15. And we're going to take up our reading in verse number 43. We'll read all the way down to the end of this chapter. And this, with the Lord's help, will be our final sermon in the book of Mark. And we'll turn our attention to the Christmas story over the next few weeks. And then we look forward to 2023. Uh, announcing a brand new sermon series that will go in line with uh, our theme for the new year. Our theme for 2023 will be, oh, you'll have to wait till January to find that out. I'm sorry, you thought I was going to tell you that. Well, that's on Vision Sunday. Mark chapter 15 this morning, verse 43 And if you found your place and if you're willing and able, stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's word. Mark chapter 15, verse 43 to verse 47. The entire chapter of Mark 15 has been a detailed account of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Mark has given us The ins and the outs of all that has happened at Jesus' death. He's testified to it by making us know of the men and women who were there. He's named them by name. It's no different now as he ends. You'll be reminded, we finished last week, verse 37. Jesus cried with a loud voice. He gave up the ghost. The veil of the temple was rent in twain top to bottom. Look with me now, verse number 43. And Joseph of Arimathea, an honorable counselor, which also waited for the kingdom of God, came and went in boldly unto Pilate and craved the body of Jesus. And Pilate marveled if he, the he there is Jesus, so Pilate marveled if Jesus were already dead. And calling unto him the centurion, Pilate asked the centurion, he asked him whether Jesus had been any while dead. And when Pilate knew of it, the centurion, he gave the body to Joseph. And Joseph bought fine linen and took Jesus down and wrapped him in the linen and laid him in a sepulcher which was hewn out of a rock and rolled a stone unto the door of the sepulcher. And Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Joseph, beheld where he was laid. Fast forward just a little bit into chapter 16. The ladies on that first Easter morning go to find Jesus. They present, they're bringing rather precious ointment, spices to anoint the body. The Bible says in verse number four, and when they looked, they saw the stone was rolled away for it was very great. And entering into the sepulcher, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment, and they were affrightened. And he saith unto them, be not affrightened. He says, do not be afraid. Ye seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen. And he's not here. Behold the place where they laid him. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would use your word in our lives this morning and teach us the wonderful truths that were accomplished, completed for us on the cross. 
and that are given to us through the resurrection of your son from the dead. And in Jesus' name we pray. And all the church said together, amen. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. Imagine if you had been given the opportunity to sail to America on the Mayflower. I'm sure that you would have been excited about such an opportunity, going to a new country, building a new home, carving out a new land. But you would have had no idea the kind of impact that such a journey would have had. No one on the Mayflower could have imagined that they were starting what would be the greatest, most powerful nation in the history of the planet. Or, or let's say that you were one of the few people who were chosen to be a part of the Continental Congress, the founding of the United States of America. You would know that it was important, certainly, You would think that what you were doing was significant, for sure. You would be excited about it, I'm certain. But you would have had no idea at that moment what you were doing and the impact that it would make some 250 years later. And so it is with Joseph of Arimathea, a small almost unnoticed detail at the end of the story of Jesus's life while he's here on earth. And I'm certain that while Joseph of Arimathea was carrying out these deeds pertaining to the body of the Lord Jesus, he could not have understood the impact that his choices were having. And so it is with God that we do not get to see in advance the impact that our lives can have. God does not show us what our lives are going to do in the future. God does not show us what our choices in the present will have on future generations. Instead, God brings us to moments of decision. And he asks us to respond in courage, in faith, in humility, in those moments of decision. And then trust him that those decisions will impact our futures for God and for good. Every act of courage, no matter how small, no matter how great, takes place within the life of ordinary women and ordinary men like you and me and like Joseph. Joseph of Arimathea is not a man who is noted for his courage. He isn't a man born courageous. In fact, no one is born courageous. Instead, courage rises in the hearts of men and women who realize That it is God who is working in you. It is God who is going before you. It is God who has brought you to the specific moment for a specific reason to accomplish a specific purpose. And he is asking you and he is asking me to respond in that moment with a holy courage. I'm asking you this morning, if you will, as we look at the life of Joseph, respond in kind in your own life. A holy courage that is necessary for us as men and women who serve the true and living God. And notice with me in verse 42, verse 43, Joseph's courageous action. Look look at at verse 42, and it was even, and when the even was come, when, when evening was here, because it was the preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So it's the day before the Sabbath of which no work was allowed. It was a day of rest according to the law of God. 
So Joseph of Arimathea, an honorable counselor, which also waited for the kingdom of God, came and went in boldly unto Pilate and craved the body of Jesus. The Bible teaches us here that Joseph is a member of the Sanhedrin. Now, if that sounds familiar, and it ought to, if you've been paying attention in our study in the book of Mark, the Sanhedrin is that uh, group of Jewish religious leaders who oversaw the execution of Jesus Christ. They had found guilt, Jesus guilty of two things. They had found Jesus guilty first of blasphemy, saying that he was the Christ, he was the Messiah, he was the son of the living God, and second, saying that he was the king of kings, he's the Lord of lords, he's the Lord over it all, and they found Jesus guilty of treason. And it was the Sanhedrin that brought these accusations against him. Joseph of Arimathea finds himself in that mix. Notice a quick biographical sketch of the man. And Joseph of Arimathea is a wealthy disciple. Matthew teaches us that he was rich by way of earthly standards. We have no idea how Joseph came about these kind of riches. We don't know where his wealth came from, but he had it. But notice this also, that Joseph, he was an honorable counselor who waited for the kingdom of God. So Joseph, much like Nicodemus, was a secret disciple of Jesus Christ. So he was a, a member of Israel's wealthy, religious, elite class. But he was also a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he knew that it was dangerous for him to associate with Jesus. And so much like the man, Nicodemus, in the book of John, who came to Jesus at night, so that way no one would know that he was a believer. And Joseph follows suit. And notice this about Joseph that Mark says, though. It says that Joseph was an honorable counselor. The word honorable literally means he was a good man. And Joseph was a good man. He acted in ways that were honorable. He acted in ways of integrity. He acted in ways of truthfulness or transparency. He was an honorable man. And by the way, let me just pull the car over here and talk for a second. We need men of integrity in our day. We need good men. And all the ladies said, amen and amen. We need men who are good for their word. You see what's lacking in our world, in our culture today? It's men being honorable men, doing honorable things. And Joseph is an honorable man. He's a good man. And I want you to notice this about, about what Mark is doing here. Mark is remembering who Joseph was. Mark is not simply remembering what Joseph did. We'll get to that in a second. But Mark is remembering who Joseph was. He was an honorable. He was a good. He was a man of integrity. I've been to plenty of funerals and so have you. And almost every funeral that I've been to, they have a time in the funeral service where people are given the opportunity to remember their loved one who's gone before them in death. And almost at every funeral I've ever been in, if someone has stood up and said something about who the person was, he was a kind person. She was so loving. They, he was giving. He or she was so cheerful. Make a note of it. People remember the kind of person that you are. People remember the kind of person that you are. They simply remember the material possessions you have. They remember the way in which you treated them. They remember the way in which you made them feel. They remember the kind of person you were. Joseph of Arimathea, what kind of person was he? He was an honorable, good man. And people will remember the kind of person that you are. 
People remember the kind of person that I am. And Joseph was an honorable man, but notice that's not all the text says. It says that he waited for the kingdom of God. Matthew, Mark, John, and uh, Luke all record Joseph of Arimathea. He's found in all four of the gospel accounts, which is a unique thing. All of them are filling in the kind of person that he was. It says in another passage that he consented not unto the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he was a part of the Sanhedrin which had made the decision to crucify the Lord Jesus Christ. To find him guilty of blasphemy and treason. But he did not agree with their decision. And he certainly did not agree with their action. He was a member of the council but he rejected their counsel. He was a member of the council, C-I-L, as that word ends, but he rejected their counsel, S-E-L, as that word ends. He was a member of their council, but he rejected it. He was remembered as the person that he was. But I want you to see, secondly, he also is remembered for what he did. He had a bold move, the Bible says. He was an honorable counselor who waited for the kingdom of God and he came and went in boldly unto Pilate. Literally the phrase is, he picked up and put on his courage. He picked up his courage and he put it on and he walked in to Pilate's office and he demanded, he asked, he craved, he longed for the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a bold move. What keeps us from acting boldly for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ? What keeps us operating in realms of being secret disciples? What is it that keeps us from putting on the courage that we need in order to boldly, boldly declare and risk it all for his name's sake? Well, several things that I think prevent us in our day. First, the world around us prevents us. The world around us prevents us from taking risks for the name of the Lord Jesus. You see, whether, whether we realize it or not, we are all profoundly influenced by the worldview of others. A lot of the way in which we see the world... A lot of the way in which we try to navigate the circumstances of this world doesn't come from the word of God. It comes from the world itself. That the world is constantly trying to shape and influence the way in which we live our lives. Every time you read a newspaper or watch a news show, you know, there's a particular worldview that's being offered. Every time you listen to a song, there are certain worldviews that are being presented in the lyrics. Every time you watch a movie, it has a worldview that's being served up. And much of the way in which you and I navigate the world that we live in is through the lens, not of the word, but it's through the lens of the world. In fact, recently a, a survey was done where it said that 62% of Americans claim that they are deeply spiritual. 62% of Americans claim that they're deeply spiritual. Does that number surprise you? It surprises me. The survey went on to say this. They said that 31% of the people who answered that they were deeply spiritual. So 31% of them said that they make all their moral choices based on what feels right or wrong. Doesn't sound too spiritual to me. They make their choices based on what feels right or wrong. Making our choices based on what feels right or wrong is not a biblical worldview. That's a view that the world is being that that the world is offering us. 18% of the people surveyed said that they make all their moral, moral choices based on whatever the person thinks is best for them. So I'm choosing to do this because I think it's best for me. 
But making a choice to do something or to not do something just because it's good for you is not the way in which God's word calls us to live. 14% said they make all their moral choices based on whatever causes the least amount of conflict. How many of you are that way? You do not like conflict at all. And whatever decision you can make to not have any conflict, you're going to choose, okay? Did you know that that's not the way in which the Bible calls us to live? Of all of those that were surveyed, 16%, only 16% said, I make my moral choices, not based on the opinions of others, not based on my own feeling, not based on whether there will be conflict as a result. I make my choices on what is right or wrong based, listen, on the word of God. The word of God. The word of God. So what does it mean that so many people would say that they're deeply spiritual? It means this. It means that a lot of Christians have a non-Christian worldview. You may be headed for heaven, but if you are not basing your decisions on the Bible, on the word of God, then it will have devastating results in your life. What keeps us from acting courageously? What keeps us from having a holy courage that we need to navigate the circumstances of our life? I mean, one thing might be the worldview that we possess. Another thing might be the fear of men prevents us from having a holy courage. It's a problem that plagued many people in Joseph's day, of which Joseph and Nicodemus were certainly subject to, but it's also a problem that plagues many people today. Fear of what others think, having a greater value, having a greater worth in our lives than fear of God. The Bible is very clear. The fear of man leads to a snare. It leads to a trap. Fear of God leads to wisdom. It leads to good discernment. It leads to good judgment. The fear of the Lord, Solomon says, is the beginning of wisdom. That you and I cannot begin to operate in wise and good ways apart from a holy and righteous reverence toward God. Where we give God and his word more say than we give the opinion of others. The fear of man prevents us from having a holy courage. Pride. That's the third idea, pride. Pride prevents us from having a holy courage which is necessary to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, you know this, but spiritual pride is one of the main reasons that people don't come to Christ. They think that their good works are sufficient to make sure that they're right with God in the end. They think that, that their religiousness is enough to remove their sin. They think that they do not need a savior. But the, but the starting point for spiritual growth is that you and I must admit that we are sinners in need of a savior. But it's not just a spiritual pride. It's also Man, a, a moral pride, a, a selfish pride. Pride prevents us from taking a holy courage. What will they think about? I don't want to look like one of them. And pride. How about this one? Sin. Sin prevents us from having the holy courage which is necessary for us to go after the Lord Jesus Christ. Sin prevents us in our journey. These are a few, certainly not all. These may be some of the reasons that kept Joseph from identifying with Jesus. These may be some of the reasons that keep you and I from identifying with Jesus. But listen very closely. Something had happened in Joseph's life. That whether it was the worldview, whether it was pride, whether it was sin, whether it was fear of man, something had happened and what had happened was he saw Jesus Christ crucified on the cross for him. 
And Jesus says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. That as Christians, we find the courage necessary by not focusing on the world, not by focusing on our feelings, not by focusing on the feelings of others. We find the courage necessary to navigate the circumstances of our life by focusing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now put your eyes on Christ. Live for Christ. Go after Christ. When Joseph's focus changed from himself to Christ, Joseph found the holy courage that was necessary. That led him to take, listen to it very closely, that led him to take specific actions. What kind of actions is the Lord leading you to take? Maybe there's something in your life that you need to address that you haven't addressed. Maybe there's an attitude in your heart that you need to repent and confess and forsake that you haven't yet repented or confessed or forsaken. Maybe there's a relationship you need to seek reconciliation in that you have not yet sought reconciliation for. Maybe it's time for you to stop hiding and find the holy courage necessary to take a bold step in going after Jesus Christ. And Joseph is a man who had courageous action. But it's not just that. People don't just remember who you were. Listen very closely. People remember what you did. People do not just remember who you were. People remember what you did. Look at it. Joseph of Arimathea, an honorable counselor, which also waited for the kingdom of God. Look what he does. Came and went in boldly unto Pilate came and went in boldly unto Pilate. How do you want people to remember you? I think everybody in this room would say, I want people to remember me as kind, as loving, as serving Jesus, as a person of integrity, as a person of good moral character. Well, we are remembered by the actions we take. We are remembered by the actions we take. Joseph went in boldly. He picked up enough courage to go after Jesus Christ. What about you? What area of your life do you need to pick up courage in and go after Jesus? Now Joseph is a man remembered for courageous action, but I want you to see something, something second. Not just Joseph's courageous action, but Joseph's courageous action help us to know that Jesus actually died. Joseph's courageous actions help us to know something about Jesus. And what is it? They help us to know that Jesus, in fact, died on the cross. Look at verse 44. Pilate marveled if he were already dead. And so Pilate calls him a centurion and he asks the centurion about if Jesus had been dead any amount of time at all yet. And when he knew it of the centurion, the centurion answers, yes, Jesus is in fact dead. Then Pilate gives the body to Joseph of Arimathea. So Joseph's courageous action, listen, Joseph's courageous action helps to serve as a defense that Jesus, in fact, did die on the cross and Jesus, in fact, did raise from the dead. You know, there are, there are many people who teach and who preach and who believe that Jesus didn't die on the cross. The Koran says that Jesus did not die. People thought that he was dead, but in fact, he wasn't really dead. He had just passed out from suffocation. Is that true? According to the word of God, that's not true. 
According to the word of God, Jesus, in fact, did die on the cross. We need to understand that Joseph's courageous action, listen, makes an impact for generations to come. You think Joseph in that moment understood that his deeds would be recorded in the word of God, closed up and sealed, forever settled in heaven, forever You think Joseph in that moment was thinking in terms that thousands of years removed from that moment, you and I would be sitting in Long Beach, California at 1000 Pine Avenue recounting the testimony of Joseph of Arimathea and allowing that to add courage to our faith? There's no way Joseph could have known that his life in those moments, those few decisions would have made the the kind of eternal impact that it had made. And yet his life does. I want you to notice a couple things about what Joseph's request was. Notice first, it was an unusual request. So the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the crucifixion rather, was not just a painful way to die. The crucifixion was was the Roman way of shaming you, of humiliating you. We've already talked about this. But that humiliation did not stop simply because you died on the cross. That humiliation continued into death. Your family, if you were crucified on the cross, your family was not allowed to have your body for a burial. The guards were to take the body off the cross and to simply throw them into a burning pile, a trash heap, literally, right outside of Jerusalem. And Joseph goes and he asks for the body of Jesus. And he does so at a great risk to himself. He does so at a great risk to his career. But Joseph goes and he asks for the body of Jesus. And when he makes this request, notice Peter is not present. And James is nowhere to be found. And Thomas and John aren't in the room that day petitioning the body. The women in that day wouldn't have even been given a hearing. No one else is in a position to be able to to plead for the body of Jesus except A man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, his best friend. This is important. It's important because if there is no death, if there is no burial, then there is no resurrection from the dead. The text makes it very clear, not only did Jesus die, but there were several witnesses to his death. Joseph being one of them, the centurion being the other, the women being present at the foot of the cross, and then Pilate himself. Three of the four were there, literally, physically, had seen the body, even touched the body. The Bible teaches us that Mary and Mary Magdalene and all the women present knew exactly where the tomb was. There are some that suggest that the the women perhaps didn't know where Joseph's body or or where Jesus' body had been laid. They didn't know the exact location of Joseph's tomb or grave. And yet the text says, no, they knew exactly where he went. Verse 47, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of Joseph, beheld where he was laid. They had been there. They had seen it. They knew where they were going. And this shores up the greatest teaching in Christianity. Because Christianity, unlike other religions, does not hinge on a doctrine. It does not hinge on a set of teaching or belief. We place our hope not in a doctrine or a set of beliefs. We place our hope in a person. And the person is Jesus Christ. And Jesus lived. And Jesus died. And Jesus was buried. And Jesus rose from the grave. And this account at the end of Mark secures it for us. You can fast forward your Bible to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul writing on this very same idea helps us to understand that if we did not have the hope that if Christ rose from the grave, then we, of all people, would be the most foolish. 
we'd be the most empty. Literally, the word is vain. It means empty. Look at verse number 12 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And the Bible reads, now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then our preaching is vain and your faith is also vain. It literally is our preaching, our faith, it's empty, it's shallow, it has no substance. But of course, Christ did die and Christ was resurrected from the grave. Verse number 17, and if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain and ye are yet in your sin. But Christ is resurrected from the grave. Fast forward in 1 Corinthians and go all the way down. Look with me at verse number 53. Verse number 53, for this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall I put on incorruption and this mortal shall I put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? And grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be unto God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the, the great devourer of humanity is death. And the reason we die, the Bible says, is because of sin. The wages of sin is death. But the sting of death, the Bible says, is sin. And the reason we have sinned is because we have broken the law of God. That's the power of sin. So the law is a demand which you and I cannot meet. And sin is the stain that you and I cannot remove. And death is the outcome that you and I cannot avoid. And many people think, well, you just live and you die. That's it. Then it's over. Well, if death is simply the end of life, then dying is no problem. But death is not simply the ending of life because death has a sting and the sting is sin. And the problem is, if you die in your sin, you die separated from God for all of eternity. And the reason why that's a problem is because of the law. That the law demands that you and I live a life that we have not lived, that we could not live. That God has given to you commandments that you, you and I have not kept. And so our attention then turns to someone outside of us, a savior, the Bible says, which is Christ Christ, the Son of God, who took on flesh. That's what we celebrate at Christmas time. Christ, who took on flesh, who lived a perfect, sinless life, who fulfilled the law of God for us. That everything that God calls a man or a woman to be, Christ was. And everything that God calls a man or a woman to do, Christ did. He dealt with the law. He fulfilled it in every part. And then the Bible says he gave his life on the cross for us, that he surrendered, that he was without sin. And yet he surrendered his life for us on the cross by becoming sin for us, that although he had no sin, he was made sin for you and me. And he dealt with our sin on the cross. And then Jesus closed his eyes in death and they took his body off of the cross and they laid him in the tomb. And on the third day, the Bible says he rose from the dead. He swallowed up death in victory so that Christ's victory is our victory. That Christ beat the law, Christ beat sin, and Christ beat death for you and for me. This is the victory that he promises you. This is the victory that he promises you if you will turn and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says you shall be saved. Saved from what? Saved from the law. Saved from your sin. Saved from death. Have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ?
Have you put your faith and trust in him? Notice Joseph's urgent response, not just his unusual request. Joseph is saying, we need to do this. We need to do it now. You remember, it's the middle of the afternoon on Passover week. Jesus died, Mark says, somewhere around 3 o'clock. The commencement of the Sabbath would begin at 6 p.m. So if Joseph is going to get the body down, he's going to get it into the tomb, and he's going to get it all sealed up, he has about three hours to do so. He has a very small window of opportunity. And so it is with the Lord. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time in which we respond to the Lord. We don't put it off for a later date. We don't put it off for a later time. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe today. This is also the good news of Joseph here that we're seeing it's never too late. You know how tempting it would have been for Joseph to have assumed, well, I was a secret disciple while Jesus lived. Now Jesus has died. It's too late for me. No, it's never too late for the Lord. It's never too late with the Lord. But you and I must choose to respond with a holy courage today. I've known some impulsive Christians before. But in my pastoral experience, I have seen a lot more people who are paralyzed by indecision or inactivity those who refuse to make a decision without knowing how it all turns out. Those who refuse to make a decision for God and good without having the complete assurance that it's all going to go exactly how they have it planned. Obsessing over the future is not how God wants us to live our lives. Because showing us the future is not God's way. His way is to speak to us today through the scriptures and by his spirit, transforming our minds, renewing us to be new creatures so that we will take God at his word. We'll base our decisions on his character, on his promises that we will have the kind of confidence we need to take a risk for his name's sake. This is what Joseph does. And Joseph's courageous action helps us understand Jesus actually died. But let me give you one more thing. And Joseph, it doesn't act alone. Now the... The name of his companion isn't mentioned in Mark. You'd have to read Matthew, John, Luke to fill it in. But we know that Joseph was not the one person there. We know that Nicodemus was as well, John chapter 19. You can understand why Joseph and Nicodemus hung out together, can't you? Both of them scaredy cats. Both of them believing in Jesus, but not wanting to tell anybody about it. As somehow or another, not managing to get enough courage to let anybody else know until this moment right here. Sometimes God uses other people to build courage in our lives to take the necessary steps of faith that we should. Sometimes God uses other people to put courage in us so that we will do what God is asking us to do. Who's that holy encourager for you? That's what the word encourage means. Literally, put courage in. Who is that holy encourager for you? Let me ask you a more convicted question. 
Who are you a holy encourager for? Who are you putting courage into? Cheering them on in their spiritual growth. Are you a holy encourager? Or are you a holy discourager? Are you putting courage in someone to take steps of faith, of righteousness, of goodness, of character? Or are you discouraging someone from taking those steps of faith? In Acts chapter 28, you have a record of Paul's journey to Rome and you'll be reminded that Paul's on a ship. He's in the custody of Roman prison guards. He eventually knows that death is what awaits him. He's weighted heavily by all of these outcomes. And in the midst of these circumstances, he hears a note of the Christians who are at Rome. And Paul says when he hears of their faith, it produces in him a boldness that he needs, a courage, same word, a courage that he needs for his journey. Hearing about them encouraged him. I want you to see this. The Bible says that Joseph brought the linen and Nicodemus bought the spices. You, you know why you need a holy encourager? Because none of us have all that it takes in and of ourselves. Did you know no one gets all the spiritual gifts? Now, I've met a lot of people who think they have all the spiritual gifts. They think they're all that and a bag of chips. But none of us have all the spiritual gifts. There are times in our life when we need people to come alongside of us. Put courage in us. And there are some times when we need to come alongside other people and put courage in them. The holiday seasons, and of course you know this, is a difficult time of the year for many people. And some people think of the, the losses that they've had over the course of the last year. Some people think of the losses they've had perhaps in the future. As some people struggle with loneliness or depression during this time of the year. Some people feel as if they aren't enough. They can't give enough. They can't provide enough. They can't buy enough. They can't do enough to keep up with everybody around them. I wonder who in your life, who in this congregation, you'll determine to put some courage into this Christmas season. If you'll look in your bulletin, we have three ways in your bulletin that we're offering for you to be able to do that. The widow's Christmas basket. This is an idea brought to us by the deacons, deacon wives of our church. They want to put some baskets together and be able to deliver them to the widows of our congregation. We have 38 widows in our congregation. We want to be a blessing to each of them. There's the Foster All Christmas, which is our church partnering with a, a local group home. These are older, young adults between 14 and 18 years of age who have been in and out of the foster care system here in L.A. County for quite some time. There's six girls in this one particular home that they're asking us to provide a Christmas for. Your shoes and sweatshirts and headphones and candies. And then there's the, the comfort and joy mailbox. Just a note of encouragement to somebody in the congregation at this time of the year. Someone the Lord puts on your heart. Maybe someone that sits around you, sits near you. See, I, I want to I encourage that person. I want to be a blessing to them. Write them a note. There are three ways to be able to participate in that. For what purpose? For the purpose of putting courage into someone. Sometimes you need someone to come alongside of you. It's what Joseph needed. It's what Nicodemus needed. 
But listen, together, these two men shore up for us a great reality in our Christian faith. That Christ, in fact, died. That Christ, in fact, was buried. And Christ rose from the grave. Would to God that the choices you and I make today to respond courageously to the moments that God has brought us to put courage into someone else to respond in faith. Let me give you this to this. Let me give you this to you quickly. We'll close. I think you have these at the bottom of your outline. A couple thoughts in conclusion. First, know this, that the gospel is for everybody. The gospel is for all people and everyone. A lot of the ministry of Jesus' life has been to the poor. It's been to the broken. It's been to the needy. But here you're seeing rich men come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. The gospel is no respecter of persons. Even you today can believe on the Lord Jesus, if you will. I want you to see, second, God's providence is at work all the time and in everywhere. We see even in this, God is ordering Joseph. God is preparing Joseph for a moment like this. Joseph was fearful. Joseph was secretive, probably by personality. Joseph was an introvert, maybe like some of you. But if Joseph had been anything other than that, then Joseph wouldn't have been in this moment of usefulness. Joseph's steps had been ordered by the Lord. Even all of his foolishness, even all of his insecurities, even his fearfulness and his secrecy, God was working in all of that to get Joseph to this one moment right here. God is working in your life just the same taking all of the foolishness, the selfishness, taking all of the insecurities, taking all of the ups and the downs of your life and weaving it all to get you to a moment of decision today. Third, notice this. Not everyone arrives as quickly as other people do in their bold discipleship. Some people get there a little faster than others. But last... No one remains a secret disciple forever. No one remains a secret disciple forever.